Actually, one of the reasons I wrote the book on top of wanting to tell my story, talk about our donors, was to understand, like, how did these pioneers keep at it when all of their patients were dying? Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Joshua Mesrich. He's an associate professor of surgery in the Division of Multi-Organ Transplantation at the University of Wisconsin, where he also runs a basic science lab studying the immune system. He's here to talk about the history of transplant surgery, his experience being a transplant surgeon, and his first book, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. Josh, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's great to be here. So your book is partly about your own experiences and journey as a transplant surgeon doing modern transplants, and partly a history of how transplant surgery came about and the pioneers in the field of early organ transplants. And I'm curious why why you decided to do both. I mean, a book that is entirely a memoir of an organ transplant surgeon sounds great, as does a book entirely about the history. So I'm curious what made you want to tackle both in your book. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I I never set out to write purely a memoir. I always um, knew I was going to write a book about transplant. I think it's an incredibly fascinating field. And the other thing I also realized is it's a true field of innovation where it went from total science fiction to reality over a short period of time. And I knew that uh, a lot of the pioneers were still alive, and then I would have the opportunity to talk to them. But at the same time, I didn't just want to write a history. I wanted to write something real that could speak to people, and I wanted to write something that would be really honest about my own coming of age as a surgeon, what it's like to be a transplant surgeon, what it's like to have victories, but also to have failures. So I always knew it would be both of those things. Um, I love history, but I certainly don't consider myself a historian. You know, it's funny. I actually, I was reading the book Emperor of All Maladies in 2011, and that's where it kind of gelled for me because I think in that book, uh, Mukherjee used his patience to tell the story of the history of certain types of cancers. And that was a strategy I thought was great, but I wanted to use both my patience and my own story. So a little bit different than what he did. So in, in looking at the, the history and the historical figures you wanted to highlight there, how did you decide what parts of your own life and career and what patients of yours and their experiences mm. to kind of intertwine into your, into your book? What were you sort of looking for these stories to highlight in the history or perhaps it was vice versa? Well, it's an, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about since I wasn't writing a straight memoir you know, really thinking about the timing of the book, you know, how would it run? Would it be the chronology of the history with my story jumping in or vice versa? And I wanted to pick stories from my own coming of age that would really highlight uh, the challenges you face at different levels, you know, as you're just starting to learn things, as you're dealing with the first patient you kill, as you're dealing with the first operation you do on your own, and, and you know, highlight these memorable items in the history, it was really easy to choose because I kind of went organ by organ and I picked kind of the prime pioneers for each organ. So I went all the way back to um, Alexis Carell, you know, at the turn of, of uh, around 1900 or thereabout when he figured out how to sew two blood vessels together. Um, but really, most of the history started in the 40s and 50s. 
um, with both the scientists and the surgeons who were starting to make this a reality. So it was pretty easy, in my opinion, to pick the historical pieces that I wanted to cover. Maybe it was harder to hone down on exactly what from my life and what from my patients. And I, I will tell you my it's a funny story. I, I was a Russian language and literature major in college, so I'm very used to reading extremely long books. But my first draft was a solid 300,000 words, which is like longer than the Bible, I think. But ultimately, it's a 100,000-word book. Um, but I had written a lot about both other parts of history and my own life that ultimately I cut out of the book. I would assume to some extent, because history is a thing that we have a lot of um, perspective on being kind of far ahead of it. And there, it's already kind of decided what the important moments are, broadly speaking, and what the important things and bits and milestones are. But when it's, it's much harder, I would assume, to look at your own life and try and figure out what those, what those big what? moments are. Some of them are probably obvious, but some of them maybe less so. Yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right. History gets uh, sifted out and then you're able to go back and and know that which person was going to succeed, you know, when they were inventing dialysis or, you know, which of the people that were trying to do kidney transplants actually got it to work. So, like, you certainly know which stories to focus on. Yeah, in your own life, um, you know, I one thing, like, I've always known, I've always loved writing and loved telling stories. And for a long time, I've been jotting down either patient stories or my own experiences that I thought really, really spoke to me, were really important and dramatic in my life, or maybe funny or represented something. So I've had a long list running of different experiences that happen. Maybe it's a coping strategy for when you have challenging things happen in your career, or in your life. And um, I, so I, I actually had a plethora of things I wanted to write about and um i wanted to make sure i had humor in there humor is one thing that's very important to me but at the same time i didn't want to get too far away from the compassion and the beauty of the field that i'm in so you know i had a lot of different stories to choose from for my own career i you know i i i feel like i have a whole nother book called the cutting room floor, floor <laughs> which will be mo mostly humorous so i'm trying to make it into a comedy act but so if any of your listeners want to hear a really good comedy act maybe that would be a good thing for me, but a really good title. Yeah, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be good? Yeah, definitely. I'm into that title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, um, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. There were a lot of stories that I knew I was going to include from the start. Like, and as I was outlining the book out, I didn't have any trouble coming with the stories from my coming of age that I wanted to include. You know, patient-wise, there's every patient has a story, and every story teaches you something. So. It was hard to sort down to which transplants I wanted to talk about, which donor stories I wanted to talk about. Uh, I didn't want to leave anyone out. That I had to be selective with. I can imagine that was it's, was really tough. I can imagine someone in your career meets a lot of really interesting people with their own unique stories, and you get to play a part uh, in how those stories go um, for good or or ill in some cases. Um, and uh, I can imagine it'd be very difficult to pick from that large list. Yeah. I mean, I think every, 
every story has something to teach you. And, you know, I'm in this field of transplant, and I like to say that transplant is really, really different than other areas of medicine. Other areas of medicine, you have a sick patient, and maybe you're trying to make them better. Maybe you're trying to prevent their death. Maybe you're trying to give them a, a better death. And all of those things are important. You know, transplant is really different. We either have uh, we have a donor, and it's either a deceased donor where someone is giving these gifts. And so in a way, it starts with death, or we have a living donor, so someone is signing up to take risk to save this person. And I've always thought it's so fascinating and amazing to be part of both sides of that, where you might be out on a procurement and meeting people who are at one of the worst moments of their lives. They've lost a loved one unexpectedly, and um, they're they're so sad, but at the same time, they're so happy to be able to give this gift. And then you'll fly back or come back and meet the recipient who is so happy that their life's being saved, um, but they know that someone just died. Or in the setting of a living donor, they know that someone else is signing up for an operation, you know, who doesn't need it in order to sort of join them in their illness. So I, I wanted to capture, you know, some of those emotions, some of those dichotomies of emotion that we get to play a role in. Um, but believe it or not, everything we do involves that. So it is, it is, we have a plethora of opportunities to, to show what, what transplant's all about. So as you mentioned, you've done both uh, donor organ procurement and uh, transplants into the recipient. I mean, is that common? Do most or maybe all transplant surgeons tend to get involved in both sides? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but um, I like to to really think of the donors as my patients, too. And I think, uh, of course, our our goal is to save as many people as we can on the wait list. But I also think our other major responsibility and goal is to allow people to give this beautiful gift of life. And so I I try not to think of the donors as, well, we got to get as many organs as we can to you know, save these people. I try to think of it more as to honor their legacy. And uh, so every program does have to uh, be involved in getting the organs. Now, sometimes we procure, procure for each other. So I may take a kidney out for uh, someone, you know, at a different program, but we're all involved in it. I always knew I would start and end the book on an airplane uh, because I do think a, a lot of people don't realize that's part of our business, but B, it does capture kind of the adventurous spirit of transplant, the spontaneity, the, um, you know, the kind of excitement of this field and that we do fly out. We do meet the families out there who are going through this terrible time, that we do spend time with them and um, that the, you know, the donor operation is... Uh, a, a real operation. It's not just uh, some technical piece. And I, I will mention, you know, the first time I went on a procurement, I was really nervous because I felt like these this donor family was going to look at me like this vulture that, you know, came to take away their loved one. But I couldn't have been more wrong about that. I remember I went into the room on this first procurement and there were about 15 people there and they had been crying, but they were so happy to see us and they wanted to understand the process. They wanted to know exactly what would happen, who would get the organs. They hung on to every word and then they wanted us wanted us to know about who their loved one was, who cared about them. It actually is incredibly beautiful and 
as we did go off to the operating room, they all hugged us. And uh, it's very special, actually, to be involved in that. It is a, it definitely strikes me as a unique moment that is both intensely grief-filled, but also, also so very intensely hopeful. That's right. I totally agree with that. I think um, it's it's tragedy mixed with heroism and beauty and hope, like all in one thing, because I do think there's this hope that they're going to provide this gift of life, that their loved one is going to live on and have this legacy. And um, it does allow them to hang on to something positive in this otherwise tragic time. And I, I really do look at donors as like, whether they're living or deceased, as running into a burning building to save someone. They're giving of themselves to save someone. And we, are, we of course, have we have pictures in our transplant unit that I suspect a lot of programs do of the mother listening to the heart of her deceased daughter in the chest of some other of the recipient. And it really is amazing. It's it's it doesn't bring back their their child or their loved one, but it is a piece of their loved one living on and providing life. And I think there is hope in that. I think, again, it doesn't bring the loved one back, but sometimes it brings new members to your family and, and some way to make sense of it all. So can you maybe talk us through a little bit of what a modern organ transplant is like from a surgeon's perspective? I mean, I think a lot of us have seen representations at a high level on TV. I mean, Grey's Anatomy comes to mind. I watched mm -hmm. the first couple of seasons of that show. Um, but I don't think many people actually really know what the transplant process looks like. I mean, it's a pretty carefully orchestrated affair from start to finish, but it's also... Um, it doesn't, you can't sort of prepare for it weeks out. It's something that a phone rings and then it kind of kicks off a whole series of events almost suddenly. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I should mention, I do watch Grey's Anatomy and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I watch it because my older daughter watches it and it's actually a lot of fun to watch with her as embarrassing as it is to watch the sex scenes with your daughter. Right. The, um, the, it is fun to be able to talk about the cases they talk about, and they have a lot of great characters, so I've reconnected with that. But it's not that realistic. But, um, yeah, the, I, I like to think about uh, trans, you know, the transplant and the procurement. It's, it's all about logistics. It's an incredible amount of balls in the air. So when a donor does get referred to our organ procurement organization, it starts off a cascade of, of, tests and phone calls and coordination and bringing in recipients that can be not just at one center, but at multiple centers across a pretty wide area. They have to look into weather. They have to look into pilots. We have to look into OR schedules. We have to run cross matches where we're testing blood uh, from recipients against donors. So often we have to fly donor blood to all of those places and get everything kind of lined up. And then all the teams have to converge at what might be this small hospital. It could be this small rural hospital, you know, up uh, in northern Wisconsin or um, Upper Peninsula, uh, these kinds of areas. Because we don't normally bring the donor to the recipients. Uh, we bring the recipient teams up to the donor. And um, so you can imagine it's a lot of uh, logistics to get all those teams there. And then once everyone gets there, we start the procurement. You know, one thing I think about surgery, I like to, like a lot of people ask as a, as a surgeon, is it stressful to be in the operating room? But 
I think most surgeons will say actually it's maybe the least part of our stress to be in the operating room. I, I like to think of operations really as a as a puzzle. You know, you go in, you prepare really carefully, you look at your imaging, you kind of make 3D images in your mind of what a surgery is going to look like. And then you go in and try and solve the puzzle. You you try and put the pieces together. You have a sense of where the vessels are going to be, where the organs are going to sit, and you start dissecting things out. You know, some puzzles can be really simple and just a few pieces, pieces and other puzzles can be thousands of pieces and really, really complex. And, uh, you know, redo operations tend to be much, much harder because you get lots of scar tissue and the planes are really hard to get into. But, you know, you get better and better at it. You get this sense of when something's not quite going right, when you need to step back, uh, when you need uh, to get help. So even if you had just dealt with this emotional piece of meeting with the donor family, when you start doing the operation, you kind of push all that out of your head and really focus on the puzzle at hand. I think of all the operations I do, probably the most complex one is a liver transplant. There were many years where people thought it could never be done. And it's a really complicated organ. When it gets diseased or cirrhotic, it gets really stuck inside a patient. And the blood vessels that go into the liver can get really distended and large and thin-walled. We call them uh, varices. And it's very easy to get into them. So the operation can be quite bloody, and uh, especially a redo liver transplant. I've done some redo livers where we lost more than 100 liters of blood. Oh, if wow. you picture, I mean, it's hard to even imagine that because yeah. if you picture I, you have five to eight liters in your body and we have anesthesia that's just pouring in blood products and suctions that are just sucking the whole time. Now, not all of them are like that. I don't want to <laughs> scare people away, but particularly the more complex ones. I did one recently. It was a redo liver kidney transplant that took about 18 hours. Normally, a liver transplant is more like five to five to seven hours, that kind of thing. But you you have to you really have to stay out of trouble. So you're in there with your. We have a fellow or a trainee that we operate with, maybe a medical student, a technician, a nurse, anesthesia team, and um, you know it's all about getting good exposure, getting your retractors in, taking your time, dissecting out all the structures, staying in the correct planes. I think the best surgeons have a sixth sense about when they're in the right spot, when they're in the right plane, and they can tell when they're getting outside of it. So they don't make false moves. They don't go off on kind of tangents, if you will. And you really have to stay focused um, and, and, uh, and not kind of lose the moment. But, you know, you practice so much, you work so much at it that it it does become kind of second nature. And I, I always have music playing and usually we're talking and relaxed and even joking. We're able to quickly switch to more, you know, serious if um, if it's a more challenging case. But it doesn't feel stressful when we're doing it. It feels controlled and comfortable. We always have people we can call for help. Um, so I think it's... Um, I think uh, it's it's amazing. The time goes by really quickly when you're doing an operation. You're so focused, and although you might be tired, it's pretty easy to stay focused during the surgery. 
This might so. sound like a really strange question, but it's difficult to tell if you're if you're sort of looking at surgery only from the standpoint of what Hollywood shows us. And Hollywood has mm-hmm. a tendency to give us surgeons who are the kind of dominating force inside a, an operating room that tends to be the, mm-hmm. the surgeon we get in media. I'm interested to know during surgery, how much is it a teamwork experience and how much is it what I think of as a stage managed experience because I come from a theater mm-hmm. background where during a performance, the stage manager calls everything. And so there's a team, but it's also got a very clear leader who's kind of calling, making all the calls and, and orchestrating the event. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you you think about the the um, personalities most people might think of as a surgeon. I think most of my friends would never have guessed I would have gone into surgery because I'm kind of a more cerebral guy. I love humor and telling jokes. Uh, I'm a pretty relaxed person, and uh, I would say I'm not someone who gets in a lot of conflicts. But I do think the surgeon definitely is the captain of the ship. That There's no question that people in the room look to you to kind of um, make sure that everything is going okay. They read your responses if you're getting nervous or stressed or um, more relaxed. I think the room does read off of that. But at the same time, it really is a team, and our teams work really well together. We tend to know the scrub techs and the nurses we work with. We know our anesthesia team really well. We know our trainees. So I do think the lead surgeon is definitely in control, but it's a pretty relaxed atmosphere. I do think when something goes wrong, it that can change. I think then, uh, you know, the surgeon definitely is the one that'll take control. And everyone has their own way of of managing stress. I do think when you're involved in surgery, all the people that work with you get to know how you manage stress really well. So they know, like, when I get really quiet, it means I'm more nervous or more serious, usually I'm talking and, uh, you know, relaxed the whole time. Uh, or if I ask for the music off, they know that I'm definitely stressed out. But I do think so. You're, you have to find a different way, a way to be in control to keep the team working and moving forward to make progress without necessarily being this domineering kind of dinosaur that you might be used to from different television shows. Um, I've always found that to get people to work together, you keep people relaxed, you take them seriously, you um, make it enjoyable, and that's always worked well for me. But there are lots of different styles. I was, by the way, a huge fan of MASH, and I always wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce. So, <laughs> I mean, who I don't, among us like, didn't want to be Hawkeye Pierce? <laughs> uh, who didn't? I mean, I don't drink from a still right before surgery, but other than that, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think I think the way he his character used humor sort of as a coping mechanism. I would say I definitely do that as well. But there's no question the surgeon is the one in control. And so you do set the stage for the room. And there are many different styles. There's There are, you know, we're not in the era of the 50s and the 60s where the surgeon's yelling at everyone. I don't think that would be tolerated nowadays, and, and it shouldn't be. But I still think in the end, in an operation, you make hundreds of decisions, and all of it ultimately is up to the surgeon to make those. So it takes a lot of training. It takes so much humility to be able to say, okay, I'm not sure here. I need to get help or I need to think about this or to get advice from your team. I think that is critical. It's a, Surgery is one of the most humbling things, but it also takes real training and evaluating the information you have, making decisions. 
you're not always right, but knowing how to get out of problems, knowing how to fix problems. There's a problem you have to fix in every case. You know, something that it's rare that you do a case and every step of it was absolutely perfect the way you'd have drawn it out. So you have a plan and then you find a way to get to the end of that plan. <laughs> so it, uh, it sounds, I think one of the most daunting parts for me as I think about if I were a surgeon is knowing, is knowing that I would have to make ultimately a lot of those, like you say, those, those decisions along the way. And there's many of them in the surgery mm. procedure. Um, somebody has to make and you can't take hours to make them. You can't sort of de-scrub and go read a bunch of books to make that decision. <laughs> it's you make a decision now. It's put in front of you and maybe it wasn't something you planned for. Maybe it's not a great decision. Maybe it's a rock and a hard place decision, but ultimately someone has to make the call in that moment and you sort of make the best call you can, I guess, given what you've got to work with at the time. Absolutely. I mean, that's so right. It's all, you know, so much of surgery is judgment and the truth is so much of it is your gut feeling, your best guess. Um, on top of all the experience you have. So there are the things you know, like we've got to sew A to B, or, you know, these two vessels got to line up, or the flow's got to be good. And then there's so many things where you're like, mm, is it laying okay? Is it sitting okay? Is that, does that need another stitch in it? Is it, it going to leak? And that's all, it's all judgment, and it's all experience. And I do think, like, there's this statement I love when surgeons say, uh, when you're looking at something and then the surgeon says that should be okay. What that means is, I think it's going to be okay. I'm not sure, but we're moving on. Right. <laughs> so I've always said that when you say that should be okay, it means this is your best, you know, your best judgment at that time. And the truth is like most of the time, uh, you're right. And, um, the times that you're not, you generally have strategies to get past them. I do think with transplant where not only are the patients really sick, but they're getting all these strong immunosuppressive medications to prevent rejection. That means, you know, things don't heal as well. Mm. The minor issues can become bigger issues. They're not as forgiving as a population. So we're pretty used to in transplant, you know, you know, making, uh, being really, really careful, getting out of trouble, have, having to work through complications. Um, having to call, you know, get help or get other opinions. That's definitely all. We work very much as a team together that way. One of the so, things but I did, I wanted to say this, there's this quote that I really love. Mm -hmm. I won't get it perfectly right, but when people talk about, you know, is it more stressful in the OR or out of the OR? I don't know if you saw, um, Abraham Verghese's book, Cutting for Stone, uh, which is a fascinating book. He's not actually a surgeon, but the character Stone is. And he teaches this uh, medical doctor, Ghosh, to be a surgeon. And Ghosh has a, has um he's, Stone has left now and Ghosh is operating alone. And he, he wasn't a surgeon and he's, he finishes the case. And then he's like, wait, did I, did I pexy that upright? What did Stone tell me? Did I look for sponges? Did I stop the bleeding? And he's agonizing. And then he goes, now I understand what Stone was saying. When the patients open, I own them. When the patient's closed, they own me. Oh, that's I think that <laughs> it's sort of a brilliant line. It's true. When the, when you're doing the surgery, everything's in front of you. You can look at everything again. You have the opportunity to get help, to make judgments. But once you close them, that's when your mind starts <laughs> going crazy, wondering, you know, is that going to be okay? And that's when you really are thinking about things. So it's kind of an interesting concept. 
One of the things I, I really appreciated in your book is how upfront you are in talking about failure, uh, failure in transplant history, because it took a lot of failure and learning from failure to get us where we are today with these techniques. But you're also very upfront about failure in your own career, because it's part of every doctor's and every surgeon's career to sort of have to have a way of dealing with failure that is, I think, probably more severe in its emotional impact or its potential for mm. emotional impact than a lot of people's day-to-day -day job failure. Right. I, so I love talking about this. You know, I've always been an incredibly honest person and I've, you know, I'm confident with who I am, but I, I've never had a problem talking about my failures, my shortcomings. And um, throughout my career, I've never minded admitting what I did and explaining why I did it and saying I, I regret that. Sometimes I did what I thought was right at the time and things changed and sometimes it ended up being just a mistake. And so like we have this conference called M and M and M or morbidity and mortality. And that's where we do it weekly where we talk about each case. And I've always been really comfortable saying, you know, I wish I had done this differently. I wish I had done that or, or maybe I really did this well. Um, I wanted to write something really honest so that people could read it and say, so this is what it's really like. This is what it's like to sometimes get things wrong, to sometimes make a mistake. And sometimes those mistakes lead to misery for a patient or even can kill a patient. We're all trying, you know, really hard to be perfect, but we're just not perfect. And I've always been honest with my patients and I do believe it's helped me develop a really great rapport with my patients. The hardest thing about being a surgeon is dealing with complications, and it's particularly hard if it's secondary to something you wish you had done wrong. I mean, I'm sorry, you wish you had done differently. Mm -hmm. But but I still think as, as long as you're there with the patient, you tell them what happened, you say, we're going to work through this, you, you know, you see them every day, and you, and you work through it, I think, you know, patients really appreciate that. I write in the book, you know, one one case where I just completely uh, made a mistake. It was a very complicated patient that I had done a liver transplant on, and he had a, a bad bleed, and I had to take him back to the OR. And essentially, the story is that in doing a big operation, I forgot to put a tie on one of his ducts because we had had some bleeding, and I got disrupted in my thinking. And I actually had, after the next day, I was sitting in my office going through the case and I suddenly realized, oh my God, I forgot to put this tie on. And I ran down to the ICU and he was so thankful that he was doing well and the breathing tube was out. And I said, I have to take you back to the operating room. I forgot this step. And I thought his wife was going to kill me at that moment. <laughs> but um, she, yeah. And he said to me, am I the victim of a medical error? <laughs> That's what he said. He's a teacher actually. So anyways, I took him back to the OR and I got the tie on the duct and um, he ended up doing great. This was more seven or eight years ago. And, um, you know, we have a even better relationship for it. And, you know, it was a really, really complex scenario and um, we worked through it. So I've always felt okay being honest about that. And uh, it's funny, a lot of surgeons have said to me, wow, it must've been hard to write some of that, to be so honest. It, it wasn't hard for me at all. Uh, it felt very natural. I, you know, I did read, I don't know if you've seen the book Do No Harm by a British neurosurgeon, uh, Henry Marsh. 
Um, it's a beautiful book that he wrote a few years back and it's maybe one of the models for my book. It, he, he's a neurosurgeon at the end of his career and is obviously a phenomenal surgeon who's done tons of cases, but it is one of the most honest books about questioning some of the things he's done, mistakes he's made, operations he took on that he really couldn't get a good outcome for. And that was kind of the book I wanted to write, a really honest book about this is what it's like. You know, we're humans, we're doing our best, we hold ourselves to be as good as possible, but we're not perfect. But what we can do is we can be honest and we can work through things with with our patients. So that's how I feel about it. It's it's interesting to hear you talk very openly and very comfortably about failure because I have heard in some places that um, a lot of doctors and surgeons aren't aren't as comfortable talking about failure or what went wrong or right. what what went wrong might have been due to error or unexpected unknowns which right. come up and trying to pick apart what those are. And while I'm not a surgeon, to me, it's always been in the work that I do and the way I live my life so important to try as much as possible to understand those moments because I always want to mm-hmm. learn from them so that I don't, so I have a better chance of not repeating those bad totally. days, right. basically. I mean, I, I think we're all, trying to learn and we learn so much from our errors you know you can watch a surgeon or maybe any anyone's practice and see that it'll change each time you have a complication it changes a little bit and sometimes that could be not the right response but i think you constantly got to be learning and there's some scenarios where like you would have made the same decision no matter what even though it didn't play out well you really did what you thought was right but then there are other scenarios where you're like huh I would, next time I'm not going to do that. And I, I can think of offhand like a bunch of scenarios like that. So I do a lot of teaching and sometimes we have fellows. So fellows are um, people who finished their general surgery training and now are doing additional training in transplant. So they're really well, you know, they're really high level. They're almost done with their training. And I'll often have them, you know, talk to the patients and I'll be there. And if I listen to them trying to talk about a, their, a complication or something wrong, you can hear sometimes how maybe hard it is for them to to say what happened. And I'll always say afterwards, you know, you can just be honest about this. You can just tell them what happened. And you have to be smart. You can't tell them every little thing you're nervous about that they couldn't possibly process. But at the same time, I think you can really communicate pretty openly with your patients and not feel inhibited by that. I think the truth is most of what we do is right. And I I don't want people to get the idea I make a mistake on every case. But um, I think the reality is like most of what we do is right. The things that don't go perfectly, we can work through. But we have to be in this together. You know, I'm the advocate of the patient. I'm working with them um, to get them where they want to go to. and, And we're a team together. So I don't know. That's really been... Uh, my strategy. And I, and I think you're right. You learn so much every day. Every day is a learning day and every case teaches you something. Um, it's hard though. It is hard. It's, it's humbling. It really is. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to watch patients struggle, but actually at the same time, patients can be so beautiful in, in how they, you know, how they handle things and how they work through things. And when they get to the other side and are doing well, it's, it's, it's such a, a a great relationship to be a part of. 
You talk a bit in the book about needing to both be able to connect with patients, but also needing to be able to disconnect when performing surgery itself in order to be able to do the job. Can you unpack that a little for us? I mean, on first blush, it can seem like an impossible task to both sort of emotionally Mm -hmm. invest and emotionally disconnect. Yeah, I mean, I think that is on so many levels, such a central tenant of being a surgeon. So, you know, you, you'll get to know your patient. Maybe maybe they have kids or a spouse or parents or whatever, and there can be these doubts in your mind like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to hurt this person or I hope, you know, I hope things go well. I don't think it's useful to be in the operating room doing a major surgery thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy has two kids or, you know, this is someone's mom or this is someone's kid. Like, I, that's not useful for me. Like when I'm doing a transplant, I need the transplant to go well. I need to to get it in right. I need to make a lot of decisions. And very few of them have anything to do with if it's a nice patient person or not, if it's, you know, someone who's wealthy or someone who's poor, if it's someone who has family or someone who doesn't. And so I really do think when you're doing the act of surgery, you're really focused on doing that puzzle and getting it right. I think I've found it's not that hard when you're in the operating room to turn that off. And and I almost don't, I don't want this to sound wrong. You're almost not even thinking that it's a person. It's like this puzzle that you're solving. It's this task. And mm-hmm. I think you want it to be perfect. Now, when something goes really wrong, like say you get into a massive bleeder or you have some real problem, that's when you'll suddenly start thinking, oh my gosh, this, you know, who's, Am I going to kill this person? Who 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 loves this person? And those feelings are are difficult to manage when you're doing a big operation. Um, but I think when you're when you're doing a case, you, just think about it. You train so hard for so many years, and you're prepared, and you're in there, and you know what you're doing, and you know the twenty things that can go wrong and how to fix them. And it really isn't that emotional when you're doing it. I mean, the hardest part, like I I kind of mentioned with the Verghese line, is is actually when you're out of the operating room and you're agonizing about, you know, how are they going to do? Is this going to be a problem? That, to me, is the hardest part. And I, I write about this in my book, and it's I think it's pretty related to this, but I love this idea that that every surgeon has to have, like, this metaphorical box. And in that box, you can put your complications, you can put your patients that aren't doing well. You need to be able to access that box so that you can be there with the patient every day. You can be honest with them. You can help them get through it. But you also need to be able to close the box so that you can be home with your family. You can, you know, continue on with your life. You can do your next case. And I know surgeons that can't access the box and they don't think about the patient at all. And they are probably the the worst of, of our population. But I also know people that they can't close the box and they're just so unhappy and they can't be with their families and they tend to get out of the field. So you have to find ways to kind of manage, you know, manage these things and still be able to be there with the patient, but, but also separate from it. So it's, it's tough, right? I mean, and there's certain patients that get you, that you really connect with and you, you know, and you have to find ways to kind of manage those things. So I do want to talk a little bit about the history of transplants. And of course, we won't be able to get into the whole history, but I would like to touch on a, on a few areas. So when did transplant surgery first arise as a not impossible possibility, as something that people started to actively pursue and try to figure out? Yeah, I mean, so transplant has a fascinating history. There were a few like kind of almost medieval leg transplants, but I don't think about that at all. That was not reality. 
I think that the the um, the person who figured out how to sew blood vessels together was right around 1900, 1902. But that was just a technical piece. I think real efforts at transplant didn't really happen until the late 40s into 1950s. So the first successful transplant was 1954. And that was a kidney transplant between identical twins. So that did show that you could take an organ out of someone and put it in someone else and have it work. That was done by Joe Murray, which was a huge event, and it ultimately led to a Nobel Prize. But that wasn't really a strategy that was going to work for most patients. I think it was really in the 40s, kind of around World War II, uh, when some when both surgeons and some scientists started to think about the immune system and the role it might play in transplant. So there's a, a man, Sir Peter Medawar, um, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1960, but he um, he actually, during the Blitz, um, he uh, was at his house and a plane went down, and he wa- he's not a, a, a surgeon, he was a scientist, but um, he got called in because the, the pilot was very burned, and he, st- you know, they didn't really know how to do skin transplants very well, and they didn't have enough skin on this on this patient to transplant from himself. So he actually was called in to try and understand whether they could transplant skin from other people. And he started to figure out, based on this burn, that there was an immune response and maybe there'd be a way to get around that. And so from, you know, mid-40s until 50s, they kind of started to understand the science behind transplant. The 50s, there was a lot of attempts at transplant that were pretty much failures. 54, they had the, the success between identical twins. It was around 58, 1958, that they started to have some success with some very, um, very uh, 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 kind of rudimentary immunosuppression. Uh, the 60s were an era of a lot of transplants with really bad outcomes. Things started to get better in the 70s. And it was really 1983 with the approval of cyclosporin um, that transplant became this reliable field. So I like to think from around 50 to 83, we went from science fiction to like landing a man on the moon. You know, that was the kind of innovation that was. And it involved both scientists and, uh, and surgeons. And uh, from really worldwide, so Medawar and Sir Roy Kahn were from UK, and there were a bunch that ended up in Boston, a bunch of American docs in Boston, like Joe Murray, and then Thomas Starzl, uh, who's out in Colorado. So, yeah, it's really, to me, like one of the great innovations of medicine that we should celebrate, that we went from science fiction to reality in 30 plus years. And, uh, you know, we continue to innovate. It's a really cool field that way. It's been uh, an interesting journey, as you say. There was, um, it sort of picked up and started to become a thing. People really started to drive in the late 40s, early 50s. And we didn't really start to get, uh, it feels like, strong success rates until um, we got a real handle on how to handle rejection. Um, yeah. And there's this, like you say, around 30 year, was it about 30 year period in the middle there where the success rates were were just really not great? And I would assume that comes from a wide variety of factors. Um, one is obviously if you need an organ transplant, you're pretty sick to start with. 
Um, right. Another one would be it's pretty severe surgery. So there's a lot of potential complications, especially if it's not a well-known surgery. Um, and obviously, then you get into this whole science of the immune system and organ rejection, which yeah. really caused a lot of problems. And, and it wasn't until we got a handle on the best way to handle that, that I it sounds like um, organ transplants became a really viable, clear option for people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you said it exactly right. So in those early years, the 40s and 50s, you know, they they barely had dialysis. They didn't have any way to treat someone in liver failure or heart failure. So basically, these patients were at death's door. They were not optimized. And then they didn't know how to handle the donor organs. They didn't, we can get into this if we want, but like brain death hadn't been defined yet. So they were really taking organs from essentially corpses. And then they didn't know much about immunosuppression. So one of the, they had steroids. And then one of the first immunosuppressive strategies, believe it or not, was radiation. So that actually came out of World War II and, um, you know, experience with radiation with, uh, with the bombs at, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and docs realizing like that the immune system was suppressed. So you can picture, in the 50s, you know, they're taking these incredibly sick people, putting in really marginal organs, and then irradiating the recipients. And um, their wounds were falling apart. Their, you know, everything was going wrong. The mortality rate was more than 80% at a year. And um, I, actually, one of the reasons I wrote the book on top of wanting to tell my story, talk about our donors, was to understand like how did these pioneers keep at it when all of their patients were dying so i knew that some of the pioneers were still alive when i started writing the book some of the people particularly you know tom starzel roy Kahn, you know the the fathers of liver transplant unfortunately joe murray had died but but some others who were in that era and i, I wanted to understand from them how did you persist you know like you know, some people will say, well, the patients were going to die anyways. You know, they had kidney failure. They didn't have dialysis. They were going to die. I don't buy that for a second because having had just a few patients die in my hands, it is a horrible experience that is so kind of destructive and personal. And it doesn't really help to say they would have died anyways. It's just a, just a brutal thing to go through. And people like Tom Starzl, the father of liver transplant, had you know, more than 10 people in a row die on his operating table when he was trying to make liver transplant a reality. And people were calling him a murderer, calling, you know, signing petitions to get him out of the hospital. He was at Denver initially and then ultimately Pittsburgh. And, you know, how did they keep going? And um, I find that fascinating. So there was a sociologist, Renee Fox, who's, who's still around, a big leader in sociology, who followed around some of these early transplant surgeons and wrote a book uh, uh, that was titled The Courage to Fail. And that was, you know, she, she kind of assessed that these people had this incredible courage to fail. I think there's truth to that. But to me, like, I think we all have courage to fail. I think like what these pioneers had was this courage to succeed. They just knew it was going to work out. Like in Starzl's DNA, he knew that he was going to go through hell with these patients, but he was going to get to the other side. He was going to make it work. It just never would have crossed his mind that it wouldn't work out. And I think all of these people really believed 
that if they just kept working at it, kept uh, uh, trying different strategies, they would make it work. And so, I, you know, each one of them had a different coping mechanism. Some of them were religious. Some of them were analytical. Some of them used alcohol, um, which isn't the greatest coping mechanism. Um, Starzl was just, he he actually had no coping mechanism. He just pushed through it. He remembered every bad outcome. He suffered greatly uh, thinking about it and actually retired pretty young um, and says after the fact that he really hated hated surgery but always believed in transplant. Hard to know exactly what's true and what's not, but um, but they all just pushed on. And so, like, I think that's a big part of the history. When you think about pioneers, they have this almost unbelievable heroic sense that that they're going to make it work. Now, of course, if they failed, you'd say they were crazy, but <laughs> but um, they're a remarkable group. Uh, so. I think that was really one of my goals. Yeah. I think that's one of the most interesting things about the history of organ transplants is it's a heroic effort because it did succeed against uh, a, a number of failures, which is just a little bit astonishing when you start to sort of add them up and count them and, and think them through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a heroic effort and a positive because we ended up succeeding. I think there is a part of my brain that can also just as easily slide into a parallel universe where um, all of those deaths and all of that work, and potentially also if you think about all of the animals that were sacrificed in the research mm-hmm. to transplant surgery, in a parallel universe where maybe we aren't where we are today, that could be seen as a as just a tragedy, as, as people trying for too long to make something work that was never destined to be workable. So I think my brain finds it very easy to slip between that veil because of how difficult it was to get to where we are today. But where we are today is also such a clear victory that it's it's difficult to align myself on any side of that veil from almost like an ethics standpoint, I guess. Right. It's a really interesting comment. You know, I think about that a lot. So they, they succeeded probably beyond their wildest dreams. And so it all seems so great. But I guess it didn't have to. And there are certainly other examples of both in medicine or or other fields where people push limits and it didn't work out. So I don't know, just off the top of my head, some of the lobotomies that, you know, neurosurgery did, or maybe some of the high dose radiation stem cell transplants that were done for breast cancer, like, like those strategies didn't work out. And it, it leaves you with a very different take on it. Um, so it is true. Now, interestingly, you re- you mentioned the dogs, you're right, tons of Animals, but mostly dogs, were used, and um, I think this is an interesting point. So when I went to visit Starzl in his office, he was 90 at the time, and it was actually six months before he died, uh, although he seemed great. But there were about five dogs in his office. I actually, as I was going up the stairs, I slipped on on some vomit, and he was like, oh, oh. that's <laughs> one of my dogs vomiting. And so he's a massive dog lover. He killed so many, and he said to me, my biggest regret of my whole career and I'll never get over it was all those, you know, poor dogs. And he, he, he says he wishes he never did that. Um, so he spent the rest of his life kind of surrounded, you know, had at least four dogs at a time as pets throughout his life. So it's sort of interesting, but, but, but I think you're right. I mean, I think these people really believed in it and they did have some successes. I think weirdly enough, the, 
the identical twin transplants was like an injection of of um, positivity or spirit into these early pioneers. So even though that's sort of a weird population, mm-hmm. like those successes just convinced them to kind of push on. And then I think people like uh, Peter Medawar, the scientist who was just this uh, remarkable kind of elegant man who was really pushing the science and having great success in in the lab, you know, was a real role model for a lot of these pioneer surgeons. So they carried on. But but you're right. Like, what if it had played out differently? It would be looked at as this sort of barbaric time, you know, in our history, you know, trying to chase this this idea that just wasn't ready. I mean, think about this. The early experience with xenotransplant. So back in uh, in the 60s, um, you know, they didn't have enough organs. They didn't didn't have brain death yet, so they were having trouble getting organs. And a, and a number of either chimpanzee or baboon organs were used. And, um, you know, they were failures and that ultimately got dropped. Um, so that was like a, a line of research that, you know, didn't go anywhere. Now we're, we're kind of coming back around to it now with pigs as the source. It could work out in the future with, and we can get into that if we want, but, but, you know, not every aspect was successful, but the ultimate discipline was successful. But, you know, it had a lot of failures involved. And, uh, you know, I think there are other examples like that. There are plenty of businesses that, uh, you know, we work <laughs> seemed like it was going to be this great thing and then tragically failed, you know, so if these guys had failed like that, maybe they'd be looked at as charlatans or, uh, you know, negative figures. It's, it's really fascinating. It's so uh, interesting, I think, because it makes a very blurry line of trying to understand how much you should try against mm-hmm. what seem like impossible odds and at what point yeah quitting or signing off and saying, okay, this isn't going to be a thing or it can't be a thing yet or something like that. Like it, it really plays with that idea, which is such a valuable tool, but also it clearly sometimes you have to push harder than probably anybody really feels comfortable with in order to do uh, kind of incredible things. So it, it really plays with that with a very big gray space there of how far is far enough. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I you know, they, they did have times where they would step back and call kind of moratoriums and discuss things and rethink them. But, but I agree. So, like, I run a lab, and it's nothing, like, on the level of what some of these guys did. But I think knowing when to drop an experiment or a line of experimentation is so critical because at some point, you, you know, like people say, uh, Medawar has a quote where he says that the – amount you believe in a hypothesis has no bearing on whether it's actually going to be true. Like at some point you have to say, okay, I'm going to drop this. This isn't working. And I think in engineering, like it's so no, it's so important to know when to kill a project. Um, so like, yeah, they pushed it way beyond what any normal person would have done, I think. And, um, I do think about that a lot. Another thing I think about is could that have happened today or could we have had, that innovation because they did a lot of stuff we could never do now. You know, mm-hmm. the, the world is different. And some people would say, yeah, it could be done better now. Some people would say it couldn't happen. So like I, I asked Sir Roy Kahn, um, who's still alive, um, if he thought it could be done today and he doubted it. Whereas Starzl said, I definitely think it could. Um, you know, you think about we're making innovation. I mean, think about gene editing. Think about curing hepatitis C. There are, there are a lot of major innovations that are still happening, but they're happening in different ways. The other piece is like how much money everything costs. So like dialysis, 
I mean, this is dialysis was invented by a guy, Kolf was his name. He was a from the Netherlands, and he um, he was a doc and an inventor who, dur- in occupied Amsterdam, he snuck around and essentially invented dialysis, like at night in occupied Amsterdam, and over like a three year period got it to work for virtually no money making dialysis machines out of like uh, sausage casings and uh you know jerry rigged uh uh devices you know jerry rigged motors and stuff like that and it, that could never happen now right innovation now is so crazy expensive and uh it just doesn't work like that so it's just a remarkable time to think about i don't know i guess i think the same thing about putting a man on the moon or or about you know the Wright brothers figuring out how to fly planes these are these massive innovations where you're like that shouldn't have worked and <laughs> they took you know they made it work they just believed in it and they made it work so but for every Wright brothers there're just as many there're tons who failed right i mean yeah. that's the other piece of it i guess yeah i do I, i'm fascinated by that yeah i do also want to talk about the definition of brain death because i think that mm-hmm. is such a um, uh, an interesting piece of the transplant puzzle. Um, and partly because it has a sort of broad implications outside of just transplants, it, it fundamentally changed a cultural definition of death. Um, so I do, I do want to unpick that one a little bit because I think it's such an integral piece of this story. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. And, um, I guess I had mentioned it a little, but it is fascinating. That brain death is is a part of the transplant story. It's both fascinating and conflicted, and I think it is maybe one of the innovations that is just as important as anything else. So you, you think about in the in the forties and fifties, there was this concept called coma de passe, which was written about in the French literature, um, which essentially was the elements of brain death, but it wasn't a legal definition. It wasn't really defined, at least not in the American literature, and. Um, this became important for two reasons. Um, in, in the early 60s, when organ transplant was really starting to get going, it was just kidneys. There weren't very many done. Um, you know, they would wait for patients to die and their hearts would stop and then they would consent the family and then they would take out their kidneys, sometimes in the OR, sometimes in their patient room, believe it or not. But no one really thought about it that much. Um, however, as transplants started picking up and as people started doing more complex transplants like the liver in 1963 and started to think about heart transplant, although it wasn't quite till, uh, uh, 67, you know, people did start to think more about how, how are we going to get the organs? And, um, but that wasn't the only issue. There also were this realization now that, you know, with the advent of ventilators that there were, people in ICUs that were getting feudal care, that everyone knew um, that they, you know, that these patients weren't going to survive and, you know, maybe their brains weren't even alive. So it's kind of interesting at at the Brigham, there was this anesthesiologist named Beecher, Henry Beecher, who's like one of the biggest names in bioethics. And he had given a lecture on futility and on is there some different way to kind of, you know, define this based on coma de passe and 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 Joe Murray who is the most famous transplant surgeon of the time was in the audience and he reached out to Beecher they ended up forming a committee that included Joe Murray the world's most famous transplant surgeon you know Beecher 
Um, some neurologists, another uh, John Merrill, who was a transplant, who was a nephrologist or a kidney doctor, and some ethicists. And they ultimately, over a fairly short period of time, essentially wrote an article that was published in JAMA, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, that codified brain death. And Joe Murray, and, and we have copies of all their drafts, and Joe Murray wanted to write, you know, when they meet this definition, like they are dead. And um, and Beecher crossed that out and wrote brain death, because he was very clear that, like, there that is a different term. So that article came out in 68, shortly after the first heart transplant was performed. And a lot of people might know that the first heart transplant was done in this very tiny hospital in Cape Town, which was weird because there were a bunch of uh, Norm Shumway, who at the time was out at Stanford, you know, was poised to do it. But the reason he couldn't move forward and do it is there wasn't a definition of brain death and he didn't know how to get a heart out of a donor you know, that that would start beating. He was too nervous to wait until the heart stopped. And um, the um, Christian Barnard, who was out in South Africa, South Africa had a definition of death where two doctors could write, you know, that this patient was no longer alive, and they essentially were brain dead. He says in the first heart transplant, he waited for their heart to stop. They withdrew support. But there's actually a lot of controversy about whether he really did or not. But that, but that's kind of the reason it happened in Cape Town, because they didn't have this same barrier. So, so it's kind of interesting. After that happened, a whole bunch of heart transplants were performed, and people started freaking out, thinking that doctors were taking, you know, beating hearts out of people that were still alive. And there actually were even a bunch of trials, both civil and and uh, uh, um, legal um, criminal, you know, talking about what were patients getting murdered. Ultimately, brain death became accepted over about a 10-year period, and it was around 1980 with the Uniform uh, De- uh, Declaration of Death Act that brain death became equal to legal death. Um, it doesn't mean it's equal to death, but it's equal to legal death. And that's been pretty much the law of the land here and in most all over the world, and most people accept that. There is still a lot of, there is still some confusion. I mean, there have been some kind of high profile cases of people being brain dead and families wanting to kind of not stop support in those patients. And, um, you know, while it is true that brain dead is not consistent with living and it's not recoverable and it's probably not a position anyone should ever be in for a prolonged period of time. To some people, death is when the heart stops. And uh, I mean, we could talk for hours about this topic, but I think that um, I think it's interesting that transplant did play a role in definition of brain death. I also like to say that I think brain death has been this wonderful, this wonderful law and line that was drawn. And the reason I say that, I don't want that to sound bad, but not thinking about transplant, but thinking about all those people who have loved ones in the ICU where so often the docs will say, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to withdraw support? At least with brain death, you're able to say to the family, you know, it's over. This patient is, you know, no, they're brain dead. They're not alive. They're not going to recover. You don't have to make any decisions. And to me, that's been really a very big positive. It is true brain death was a line that was drawn just like every other law that exists. And I think it was a really good line that was drawn. 
But some bioethicists argue, is it real? Is it really death? And they actually will argue, you know, maybe you don't need brain death. Why not get rid of that and be able to take organs from people with other diagnoses as long as there's consent? I don't, you know, we have this concept called the dead donor rule where organ donation is is not allowed to lead to the death of the patient. And brain death fits in the dead donor rule because they're legally dead and we can take organs from them. If we were to remove organs from someone who wasn't brain dead as their as the thing that killed them, that would be quite a different uh, scenario that we don't do in organ transplant. Donors... So, lots, lots. Not to cover that. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was interesting to read more about um, the effect of of taking or of uh, procuring organs from donors who are brain dead versus donors after the circulatory death, because it does yeah. it definitely can have an impact and strongly mm. has an impact on what organs can be procured, but also uh, it sounds like also the potential success rate after um, yeah. the recipient receives them as well. That's totally correct. So this is um, important and it can be confusing to people. So when someone is brain dead, they're legally dead. And in that scenario, um, we can move towards organ donation, obviously, if the either the person had consented, had you know, had it on their driver's license or the registry, or if the family consents. And in that scenario, we get all our recipients ready, and then we can take them to the operating room and remove their organs, including the heart. We stop the heart and, and take everything out. And they're legally dead, so we can do that. There are lots of people who never become brain dead. The majority of people who die don't become brain dead. I mean, typically, you become brain dead either from a stroke, getting shot in the head, a heart attack, where you you know, you don't get oxygen in your brain swells or even like a drug overdose where your brain, where you don't breathe in your brain swells. But lots of people don't get to that point. They get to a point where they're not going to survive and the family decides to withdraw support um, because they're, you know, terminally ill or imminent, you know, imminently going to die. And so the doctors withdraw support. Those patients can also be organ donors if that's what's wanted, but we don't take them to the operating room and just take all their organs out. We actually have to wait for their heart to stop the kind of other definition of of death. Um, so in that scenario, which we call donation after circulatory death or DCD, um, this is either done in the operating room with the family there or in the ICU um, their doctors withdraw support, take out their breathing tubes, stop all their medicines, and then we wait for them to die. If they die quickly, so in under two hours or so, we can kind of quickly take their organs out. So now the heart is stopped and we can remove their organs. There are two issues here. Number one, about a third of patients that we take for DCD donation don't progress to death in the time frame needed for organ donation. So we end up they go back to the ICU or the or wherever they were, and they die without donating organs. The other piece is that we don't get as many organs from DCD. We traditionally haven't used the heart from DCD because it's thought that that process is too hard on the heart. And the organs do a little bit worse. The, the livers have more risk of bile duct problems. The kidneys don't work quite as well. So So it's a little bit less organs and functional issues as well. We do nowadays have these pump systems where we can take the organ out and put them on the pump. And that seems to be improving things. And even some hearts are now being 
removed after the heart stops and put on a pump and it actually starts beating in the pump and the that's and they're used for transplant that's really experimental protocols at this point although it seems promising so um you know we're getting better at those organs but it's um you know it's a different process um and it is really tough when you go on a procurement and the family wants to give this gift and then their loved one doesn't progress and they don't get to donate the organs. You can imagine that that can be very distressing for the donor family. You know, but what's the other alternative? We don't want organ donation to be the cause of their death. Right. Uh, so that's what we have. I think that makes have. literally everyone uneasy. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. So there, I mean, if we really want to get into the nitty gritty of, of what, of the thought process out in the world, there are a couple of things that have been proposed that some countries are doing. So, one concept called imminent death donation would be that you take a patient whose the support's going to be withdrawn. It could be the scenario of, say, a disease like ALS, um, where they're neurologically intact, but they're having support withdrawn and they're able to say they want to donate organs, uh, where you take them to the OR and just remove one kidney for donation. That would be, and then you bring them back and then withdraw support. That would be called imminent death donation. That's not something we do in this country for sure. I'm not aware that that's done anywhere, but it's been discussed. But the other thing that's been reported out of the Netherlands and Belgium, and then just about two weeks ago, a, a New England Journal report from Canada um, is doing um, organ donation after either uh, euthanasia or medical assistance in dying. And so that's not something that's done in the United States. Um, but in those three countries, um, they have reports of that. There are countries where they have legal, uh, I call it maid or medical assistance in dying, where the patient is able to end their own lives if they have, uh, you know, an appropriate diagnosis. And then there have been a small number of cases where after they died, their organs were then removed for organ transplant. That's, in this country, you know, not done and controversial, but in countries where made or even euthanasia is legal and accepted, it's something that people are starting to consider. I think it's just critical that the procurement of organs is separated from the death of the patient. So if the patient decides they have some disease, they're going to, you know, it's time to end their life. They're in a country where that can be done. That decision and that process is separate from the removal of organs. Um, you can see how some People can get <laughs> squeamish or concerned about this. Um, some of that can be religious. Some of it can be ethical. Some of it, who, who knows, right? People get, people have different opinions about death and how it should be. Um, but, you know, they're fascinating topics. I, I really believe that for donors who, for people who are dying who want to donate organs, they want to give this gift, this beautiful gift, this beautiful legacy that saves someone it really can give them so much and give their family so much. It can maybe bring a little peace and make their disease process worth something. Um, so I kind of believe in finding ways to help them be donors, but at the same time, you don't want to affect the public trust about organ donation or have people be distrustful that we're taking people's organs out. For sure. I wrote an article a few a few years back about an ALS patient who came to me who wanted to donate organs. Um it was in the Atlantic and I have him I wrote about him in the book as well, but mm-hmm. we we couldn't quite figure out how to make it work and he didn't he died without donating organs and that was rough. I mean, that was not what he wanted and um so I still regret that. 
There's also a, a patient story you talk about in the book, um, which is a living donor. So the organs don't come from someone who has died, but from someone who is living mm-hmm. and decided to donate an organ. And you uh, talk about in quite a bit of detail, um, a patient, a uh, husband and wife, and the husband was probably not necessarily the best possible candidate for a mm. living donation, yes. but he's so desperately wanted to help his wife and he was willing to uh, make great personal sacrifices to make sure that that happened. And that was such an interesting case to Mm. read about because I think any of us who have um, loved ones, we can all kind of envision a world where maybe that is our decision that we're trying to make. And perhaps it's us who is that husband trying to convince a doctor mm. that even though we might not be the best candidate and maybe we won't do great, that we're still, we still want to do it. And it, again, it's also a, a murky ethical place because there's also ways where that could be spun or coerced. And it, it it's, it's a very complicated area. I'm just so glad you brought this up because I love that story and I love talking about living donors. So we do many living donors for kidneys and then some for livers, but this was a a kidney donor. And, um, you know, the, the truth, we do kidney donors laparoscopically. So through small incisions, I do some of them even through the belly button. Um, the surgery is straightforward. It's not without risk. Um, but the risks are low, but to me, it's this beautiful thing. People sign up to undergo an operation to essentially become ill with the recipient to get them better. And I love that concept. So we like we evaluate donors really carefully, and as long as they are healthy, their risk of death is like three in ten thousand, so very low. The risk of kidney failure over their lifetime is about one percent, which is higher than if you don't donate, but still a really low number. Now this guy, this is a great story. He came, he was overweight, he was a smoker, he had a little bit of high blood pressure. So those are all factors that make you think, huh? These are risk factors for kidney failure his risk is going to be higher. Now, it's not going to be 10% or 20%. It's going to be, you know, a couple of percent. I don't like to use percentages too much with patients because I feel like I'm not conveying what I'm thinking. Like if I say to a patient, you have a 5% chance of dying during a surgery, a lot of patients are like, oh, that's not bad. Whereas as a surgeon, you're like, that's awful. Like we, we, we would never do that. But, um, you know, this is the thing. I was talking to this guy and he had been turned down from a couple of other centers. And he said to me, Doc, listen, I know you think I'm higher risk, but you have to understand my wife is our whole family. She does everything. I can't live without her. You know, she's the mother to my kids. I will do anything. He said, I'll sign that I won't sue you, which I thought was brilliant. But um, um he was like, just let me do this. And if I end up in renal failure, you know, it'll be so worth it to me. And I thought, you know, how paternalistic are we supposed to be? Like, can't he make that decision? Now, at the same time, if a parent wanted to donate a heart to their child, you know, you would never let them do that. And so I do think people can make this bad decisions or decisions that you just couldn't do, you know, through through love or, um, um, I don't know, desperation. But But to me, this is nowhere near that, right? This is a few percent. It's a little bit risky. So, um, ultimately I kind of supported him and we did the surgery and it was a little challenging, but it went fine. And I saw him back in the clinic about a month later and he, he said to me like, doc, this, 
this is the best thing I've ever done. And I can never thank you enough for what you did for my family. And I'll never forget, like he went to shake my hand and he had these like big, thick, rough hands of, of a person who had worked hard his whole life to provide for his family and kind of enveloped my soft, wimpy hands. And, uh, I, I, well, all I thought was you got that wrong. I'm not the one who helped your family. You know, I thought, this was such the right decision for him and he understood and I just felt proud to be able to help him get his wife back. And, you know, I really believe in donation as long as people know what they're getting into. Again, it's like running into a burning building to save someone and the risks are low. They really are. But, you know, it's still a leap of faith. It's I write about this transplant surgeon who donated a kidney and she does that operation, but she still felt it was a leap of faith. It's this leap into the unknown. But most of our donors will say after the fact, it's the best thing they've ever done. Our goal is to make sure they can say that. But, you you know, you go through some pain, some stress, some suffering to get to this incredibly beautiful spot. So I'm just so glad you brought that up because I love to celebrate the living donors. I think living donors, and in particular, when you look into uh, kidney donations, where one um, donor who does it purely out of goodwill uh, and who isn't personally connected to any of the recipients yeah. can start a cascade of donations yeah. um, around an entire country and that lasts weeks and sometimes months. Those are such great inspirational stories that sometimes you need one one domino to get the rest of the dominoes yeah. going. And that I love hearing about those stories as well, because it is such a great inspiration and there's so there's such a selfless kind of human moment but also it's it's interesting when we think about donations as one of those places where the kind of adage of a doctor which is do no harm is a little bit intention because of course you're performing right. a surgery on a healthy person right and i i agree i'm so glad you brought that up for this kind of science based audience cuz you know we paired exchange or this idea where you can you can donate a kidney directly to someone, but if you're not compatible, you can imagine a swap where you donate to someone else and their donor donates to your recipient. Now, it doesn't have to just be two pairs. It can be more than that. But even beyond that, if you are a donor that comes in and you don't have an intended recipient, if you just give into a pool, like you mentioned, you can start a chain where your kidney goes to someone and then that person's donor donates to someone and then that person's donor donates to someone. We work with the National Kidney Registry, which is a, a big national organization in the U.S. That's really wonderful. But um, we were involved in a chain that was more than 60 pairs and it crisscrossed the United States, went over like three months until the chain finally broke. And that was all started by one person who came in and, and donated a kidney. It's really math. The person who wrote the first algorithm for paired exchange um, Alvin Roth is a games theory uh, professor who actually won a Nobel Prize for game theory, and he wrote the match for the medical residency. Um, but um, he he wrote the first paired exchange uh, soft uh, uh, algorithm. It's moved beyond that now, but it's such a cool thing to be able to do that. So I'll come in early. We'll start a case at six thirty. I'll take a kidney out. We'll put it in a cooler, and it goes on a commercial airplane, and it might fly to New York, and then they might take one out, and it flies to. Chicago and it flies to California. It's really cool. 
Um, it's really fun to be a part of that. Yeah, I remember reading a little bit about some of those chains uh, a while back, and it actually uh, every once in a while, I when I'm flying on a commercial airline, I like to think maybe there's yeah. a kidney on this plane. It kind of it's one of those moments where I'm like, maybe there's maybe there's a life being saved somewhere on this on this journey, which makes me feel uh, that makes me feel kind of good in those miserable airplane moments. Yeah, totally right. It is pretty. It is pretty amazing to think that it's it's almost become so normal but it, all these things took a long time to figure out there was like a 10 or 15 year period where people couldn't quite make it work and then now it's 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 working beautifully so yeah i mean i i think um donating to someone you know or love is great donating to the pool is remarkable it's all just talk about giving an incredible gift it's just it's so cool to be a part of that Josh, it's been really great to have you on the show. And it was a really great book. Thank you so much for writing it. And thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed that conversation. If you want to learn more about Josh Mesrich or his book, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon, as usual, you can find links to click to all that and more on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 